Advent is that special time, and I'm going to ask you to do this uh, in your Bibles. Grab a Bible, first of all. If you don't have a Bible, um, raise your hand. We will bring one to you. You need a Bible? You don't need a Bible. Okay. If you need a Bible, we'll get one for you. Thanks, guys. And turn to Joshua, the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, we're moving out of Thanksgiving, moving into Christmas, and we're in Joshua. It'll make sense in a little bit, I hope, okay? Well, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you've had a good filling of food and family and festivities. Some of you may still have, and I'm sort of curious, I asked the worship team this earlier, does anybody still have a Thanksgiving get-together to go to yet today? Anybody have more? Nope. Oh, it's come to an end for everybody. You're probably all... Very thankful for that, right? College students, where are you at? Can college students, can you do me a favor? Can you please stand up? I know we got two here, three here maybe. Any college students that are heading back today? One, two, three. All right, four. Excellent. And Zach took off this morning early, catcher's ride. Okay, you guys have a seat. It's good to have you back. I know in our house, uh, for those of you that have family take off, it's good to have them back and um, it's sort of exciting. College students, you probably heard this. Oh, it's so good to have you back. So when you have to go back to college? It's like, thanks, I'm home. And then they're asking you when you're kicking you out again, right? Uh, that sort of happens. But we really appreciate and enjoy that time of get-together family. And now we sort of anticipate the Christmas holiday season coming. Uh, it is a really special time of the year. Uh, we would definitely want to pray for our college students as they head back today, back to their uh, campuses and for those that are traveling right now. Um, it's good to have them here as they go back keep praying for them but as it comes to an end and uh, here's what happens the Christmas music begins right we went we shot right out of Thanksgiving right into Black Friday small business Saturday Sabbath Sunday cyber Monday I don't know hashtag give Tuesday it's got so many different names now this is crazy what's going on right now in our world but that's what it is right and then there's a stronger anticipation for Christmas building the music's playing the trees are up I, I the setup team did a fabulous job this morning with the trees okay so maybe they didn't do it but we thank the school for the opportunity to put that up um, but one of the ever popular Christmas decorations besides the tree is the nativity scene. I don't know how many of you put up a nativity scene in your home. Uh, we drive by, we see them all the time outside. And uh, what I want you to do now, I want you to imagine or picture a nativity scene. Kids, if you've got the whiteboards this morning, maybe some of you've got coloring, and, and parents, if you've got um, an infant or a toddler that sort of gets like crazy on you, we do have the teacher's lounge open and set up for you to hang out in there if you need. Um, but kids, if you've got the whiteboards, I'm going to give you something maybe you can draw right now if you want. How about the nativity scene with the manger and the animals and all the characters that are around? Why don't you go for it because I'd love to see them after church, okay? I'd love to see those. The rest of us are going to just imagine it, okay? Now, adults, I'm not going to exclude you from this. So if you want a whiteboard right now and you want to start drawing, go for it, okay? I don't, that's okay. Go for it. But I want you to imagine that scene, okay? You have animals that are congested around the manger scene, right? It's a makeshift scene of this perfect barnyard. And although uh, we know is most likely a cave, uh, we always picture the barnyard, okay? Filled with activity and animals. Now we see the shepherds 
Usually the shepherds are standing off to the side. The animals are sort of mixed throughout, but they're, the shepherds are usually a step in front of the animals. Okay? So we've got the shepherds standing there, maybe a couple of them kneeling. On the other side of the manger, we have the wise men. And typically we have what? Three. We know there are three gifts. We don't know how many wise men, but let's go ahead and just put three out there because each of them have a gift to bear. Okay? They have their camels probably kneeling behind them. And then we have, uh, above the manger scene, we have the angels floating. Maybe the star is up there, but you got the angels above singing, looking down. And then we look sort of more down below that, and we have Mary, who's usually sitting on a bale of straw. And there's the manger scene. And we've got Joseph proudly standing right next to Mary, like proud daddy's got his arm on his staff, maybe, or his hand on his shoulder. Everybody picturing this? The exhaustion from their journey is all but eclipsed by the incredible taking place of events of giving birth to the Messiah. So they've got smiles on their faces. But let's not forget the center of the attraction. Jesus, the Messiah. Right? The one anticipated for years to redeem, to save, to establish God's kingdom. He came. It's God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, right there, come to make his dwelling, or as John says, to pitch his tent. For those of your campers, you set the stakes, I'm putting down the tent. That's what John talks about when Jesus came. Surrounding the infant Jesus, then if you think about this, here's the Messiah, the infant Jesus, and surrounding them are a cast of unlikelies. People you would never expect, uh, expected to welcome the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, prince of peace. Those are the ones that came. As you look at each unique figure, we can relate to them probably in one way or another with their story, their past. Shepherds, wise men, angels, Mary, Joseph. Let's think about this, okay? So what we're going to do over the next three, four weeks we're going to pick a few of these people, the cast, that were around the nativity scene and draw them out and see if we can relate to them and their story. So today I want to focus on Mary and Joseph. They were, um, you sort of sit back and look at them, teenage couple. You have to sit there and say, how were they chosen? How did God pick them out of all they could have picked? I don't know if you ever sat down and read the genealogies. Have you ever done that? You ever open up the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and maybe you're in a Bible reading plan, and then that Bible reading plan, as, as you're opening up, it's like, okay, I'm in Matthew chapter 1. Let's see here. Okay. And you sort of get to Matthew 1, and you're like, oh, the genealogy. There's no action here. There's no, you need to do this here. It's just... And Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Judah the father of Judah. And if you're reading it, you're reading King James, and he begat, 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 okay? It's like, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and mark this off reading plan. I did that, and I'm going to go to the next one because I want some action. I don't know if any of you are really into the genealogies, but if you were to read them, and if maybe you've read some great devotionals in the genealogies, you discover some pretty amazing things. But it seems like the king of kings should have come from a moral line of characters. Like maybe a, a greater royalty line of, and then king and queen and prince and princess. And you know, oh, Jesus. And you, it doesn't happen that way. 
And if you read in the lineage and the genealogy, you're going to read in Matthew if you go, it goes all the way back to Abraham. But if you go to the book of Luke and you start reading, it goes all the way back to Adam. I mean, you talk about a family tree and being able to trace it, it's pretty incredible. But the names on there are some unlikelies. There's a few, who are they? Uh, were they qualified to be in a family tree? And you maybe try to find something on them and you can't find a lot about them, right? So let's, we're going to pick one out of that genealogy, out of that family tree, because it's from Mary and Joseph. You follow Mary and Joseph's ancestry back, and you come to one, I'm going to call unlikely, and that is Rahab. Anybody in here want to stand up right now and tell me about Rahab? Nobody likes talking about Rahab too much. Rahab wasn't the kind of girl we talk about in church, especially, right? Because Rahab had men waiting at her door, probably the back door, okay? Men who wanted to use her and abuse her. She lived in a town that had no church. Nobody got up and pulled out a scroll and read God's word. Nobody talked God talk. There was no hope. There's a dark place. She's alone. She lives in her mess of a life, wounded daily, looking for hope. And she knew her life needed to change. Two words. Then God. Look at the person next to you and tell them, then God. Two key words. Let's say it together. Then God. Let's do it again. Then God. Because see, in life we have these moments when we're walking along and it's like, then God shows up. Then God said this. Then God did this. This is a then God moment. In the midst of her situation, and you think about this, among thousands in the city of Jericho, a huge city, Rahab, a prostitute, a woman who's abused and alone, then God. We see what happens to a, those without hope when they discover a then God moment in Rahab, the God who can reveal himself whenever, wherever, to whomever, God is never limited by a lack of, and he's not restricted to the expected. He's no respecter of persons. He's the relentless rescuer of the prodigal of those who run away. The God who gives gifts of faith when we feel hopeless and doubt, God shows up. And God didn't have to reach out and include Rahab. He could have picked anybody else. He could have destroyed the whole city and let Joshua and the Israelites move right in. But he didn't. He had a then God moment. We witness a story of grace here. So in the story of Rahab, the Israelites come in and they spy out the city of Jericho, if you remember the story in Joshua. And as the spies are going through the city of Jericho, they are discovered. They're going to be captured and killed. But before they can get captured, before they're put to death, they find the house of Rahab. Rahab hides them, and she takes a risk to live. Let's look at Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. So let's read the story so we sort of find out what's going on here. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord's given you this land, she told them. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. 
For we've heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the dry sea or the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. Listen to this very carefully. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Verse 12. Now swear to me by the Lord that you'll be kind to me and my family since I've helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you'll let me live along with my father, my mother, my brothers, sisters, all the families. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we'll keep our promise. We'll be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then since Rahab's house was built into the wall, she let down a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they've returned, you can go your own way. Before they left, before they left the men told her, we will be bound by the oath that we've taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down and all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, all your relatives must be here inside the house. It's an incredible story here. And you think about when she knew who God was in this godless city and living a godless life. She'd heard about a supreme God and the supreme God was one to be worshiped. And so she's got these men here and she says, I understand who your God is. And, and she could just sense this curiosity boiling within her, wanting to know more. But she wants to be rescued. She wants to be saved from what's not only going on in her life physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And she makes a deal with them to be rescued. And they say, here's what we're going to do. You take this rope, this scarlet cord, and I want you to take the rope and throw it out your window. And she let them down. And they said, keep that scarlet rope. When we come back, leave it hanging outside your window. Well, no, that's your house, and you'll be saved. And they left the rope hanging there for her. Now, when you think about this, we'll come back to in a second. God rescues her from destruction, both physically and spiritually. But what happens after the walls of Jericho fall and Rahab and her family's rescued? You know what happens after that with Rahab? We don't know much about this, so we have to look. And we find that she gets married to Solomon, and they have a son named Boaz. Rahab is a mother of Boaz. What do we know about Boaz? Well, something with Ruth, right? You see, the mother-in-law of Ruth is Rahab. The great-grandmother of the great King David is Rahab. The great-great-great-great grandmother and so forth down the line of Jesus Christ is Rahab. Wow, grandkids, would you like to tell a story about your grandma and her former life and how she was rescued? That's quite a story to tell. Now, besides Sarah, she's the only other woman noted. We call it the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, there's all these people listed, and this person has great faith, and this person has great faith. There's only a couple women listed, Sarah and Rahab. 
verse 31 of chapter 11 says this, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab reminds us of the sovereignty and the grace of God. What is grace? Getting what we don't deserve, right? Her story reminds her that God is full of grace. No matter what we've done, no matter how big of a mess our lives have been or currently are, no matter the sin that entangles us, that we struggle with, that we fight with, there's hope. Thanks to the story of Rahab. Now, in the Hebrew dictionary, there's a word named tikva, and I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. Okay? It's T-I-K-V-A-H, tikva. And it's defined as a cord or a rope or a line. Okay? And it means to bind. So if things are really bad, they said you were given a rope, a tikva, in which you could tie a knot into, and then you'd be able to grab onto that knot and hold on for dear life. Sort of find hope by holding on to this rope is the way they would talk about that. Now, tikva is that rope that we would say, when things are going rough in my life, spiritually, God, throw me a rope to grab onto. Throw me something that I can tie a knot in and a cord from heaven, a rescue line, a preserver, something I can just, God, help me because I'm struggling right now, okay? I need some hope. See, when pain and hurt comes our way, it's easy to lose hope, to consider things that are worse than what they really are, and we let go of the rope. So I'm just giving up. I quit. Psalm 62, 5 through 8 says this, Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. I need to back up. That word tikva, as I told you, means rope. Um, it's translated in Old Testament as hope. So when we talk about a rescue line from heaven, a rope that's been thrown down to us, that is the word hope, H-O-P-E, used. All that I am, I wait quietly before God, and my, my hope grabbing on. My hope is in him. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Hope is what God gives us in strength to carry on. We're able to comfort one another and say, there's hope. There is hope. Tikva is the connection between the natural and the supernatural. It's a rope that ties us to heaven. Tikva is a word that's used in Psalm 19.4 as a line or cord that stretches from heaven to earth. It says, their line is gone out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Our hope is in the one who bridges heaven and earth. See, while in Jericho, the Hebrew spies hid on that home of that prostitute Rahab, and Rahab promised, you keep me safe, I'll, let, you know, I'll help you guys escape as long as you keep me safe during this invasion. And a sign of an agreement, 
Rahab tied that colored rope to her window, laid it out there so they could get escape, and then also as that sign, that hope for her that she would be rescued when the invasion came. Tikva was that rope of hope. And a person with hope, think about this, behaves differently than those without hope, right? I want you to think about right now, last time you've acted with hope and when you acted without hope. When you felt a situation was hopeless, but yet another situation when you were very hopeful. Think of those moments. A person with hope behaves differently. When a person has hope, they pray for rain, and what do they do? They carry an umbrella because they have hope that it's going to rain. A believer hoping for sickness doesn't mope around telling everyone that about their symptoms. They want to get well. Someone with hope for finances blesses others and he gives to the poor. A woman with hope or a man with hope for a new job, they get up in the morning and they start putting the resumes out there, believing that God's going to come through because they have hope. A family who hopes for wholeness forgives and they take steps to move on in family situations. Hope produces action. Hope is the desire and a belief that things will get better while faith is evidence that their belief is displayed through their actions. Max Lucado said this, and I, I love reading uh, his, his, his books, but he said this, hope shines brighter when the hour is darkest. Hope motivates when discouragement comes. Hope energizes when the body's tired. Hope sweetens when the bitterness bites. Hope sings when all melodies are gone. Hope believes when the evidence is eliminated. I'm going to stop for a second. Hope sings when all melodies are gone. Have you ever been to a funeral and they want to sing? Sometimes I have a hard time with that. I'm sitting at a funeral and we're singing songs. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I really want to sing right now. But I can sing. Why is that? Hope. Because I know that they are alive in the presence of God. My hope allows me to sing. Hope sings when all melodies are gone. Hope believes when the evidence is eliminated. Hope listens for answers when no one's talking. Hope climbs over obstacles when no one is helping. Hope endures hardship when no one is caring. Hope smiles confidently when no one's laughing. Hope reaches for answers when no one's asking. Hope presses toward victory when no one's encouraging. Hope dares to give when no one is sharing. Hope brings the victory when no one is winning. There's nothing to do but bury a man when his hopes are gone. Losing hope usually precedes loss of life itself. You don't need a better environment. You need more hope. It's the one thing in your life you cannot do without. When I think about the story of Rahab and the rope, and then I understand the Hebrew word that meant hope, that she placed her hope in something that she could not see. In the same way, we place our hope in the God that we can't see, but we see everything he does around us. A number of years ago, researchers were performing an experiment to see what hope does on those who are undergoing hardship. So this is what they did. They put two sets of laboratory rats, and they put in separate tubes of water. The researchers left one set of rats in the water for about an hour. They didn't touch them. 
and they all drowned. The other two with the rats in it, when the rats looked like they were about ready to go under, they would reach in, pull the rats out, give them a little rest, and then set them back in the water again. And until they looked like they were about ready to give up, then they'd reach in and pull them back out and set them back in. They did that periodically for a while, and then they let it go. And they watched what happened to those rats in that second tube. And they swam for over 24 hours on their own. Why? Because when they were given a little bit of rest, was that why? It wasn't that. The researchers believe that they were given hope. That after a certain amount of time, somebody would rescue them. So just keep paddling. And they got put in that water again. And when they thought maybe it was all gone and said and done, somebody would rescue them again. So supposedly, from this research and from this experiment, they felt that these rats, these rodents who can't think, okay, like a human being can think, had hope. Somehow, if they could stay afloat just long enough, somebody will rescue them. Think about this. If hope holds up such power for unthinking rodents, what should it do for us? I believe we're all much more intelligent than a rat. Amen? Get one amen out of you this morning. Yeah. God's Spirit urges us to stop seeing the glass as being half empty. Take your focus, there it is. Take your focus off your bills and your bosses, okay? And look at the master of heaven and earth and have hope. So I looked at that scarlet cord of Rahab that she threw out her window. That was her hope. She placed her hope, her faith in God. What about you? Church, what about you? Where's your hope today? How many of you are facing hopeless situations? How many of you are struggling with hope right now? How many of you realize that God has placed out this rope for you to grab onto? It says, place your hope in me. You know, in this story, we see how God picks an unlikely. And that's what amazes me. It's he picked Rahab, of all people, to show hope. How many times have we looked at people in their lives and say, God's going to do something with them, really? How do we judge people, right? Rahab isn't in that nativity scene, but think about this. Her relatives are. Her relatives are right there. We have Mary, the one who introduces the Messiah to the world. The one who's going to teach Jesus how to walk and talk and dress. Yeah, I think, you know, if we wanted to talk about Rahab and Mary, Rahab and Mary, and Joseph, sorry. If we look at them right there and say, what about Mary and Joseph and their lives? You're looking at two teenagers ready to get married, and then the twist in the story. Mary gets pregnant. Explain that one to everybody. Mary and Joseph had no sexual relations together, yet she's pregnant. How do you explain that to the neighbors? That's like a social media bomb ready to explode, right? Oh, did you hear? Did you? Oh. That's a disgrace to both, an embarrassment to all, right? And Joseph wasn't dumb, okay? As the, as the guy who's getting married to this young lady... She's pregnant, and he's, he's not dumb. He's like, that was me. He could have walked away. He could have disgraced her big time. 
But Joseph does the right thing right away. Instead of dismissing Mary, he's sensitive, he's obedient to God and what God told him to do in that situation. He has to weigh this, social acceptance, obey God. Ooh, what everybody's gonna say about me, possible employment down the road because of what God's done, or obey God. Joseph obeys God. He places hope in God in this situation. He could have rolled with his feelings, but we know that feelings are not accurate measures of rightness and wrongness of an action. And in the midst of the story, this imperfect young couple are wondering what's going on in their life, and God's doing something supernatural. And all God says is this, grab on and trust me. That's all you got to do. I know the situation sounds weird. I know everybody's going to belittle you and make fun of you. You'll be an embarrassment in the society. But do you trust me? Just grab on. Place your hope in me. We assume that God's looking for the righteous, the best of the best, right? Because see, that's what we tend to do as believers, as I said earlier, is that when we're looking for a Sunday school teacher or a children's worker, or we're looking for certain people, we're saying, well, let's see who's qualified to be an elder. Let's see who's qualified for this. And as typical human beings, what we do is we look for those who we think are the most qualified. Was Rahab really qualified to be the great, 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 and so forth, so on, grandmother of Jesus? Was she really qualified? Was Mary and Joseph really qualified to be the mom and dad of Jesus? Were they really qualified? I mean, if we thought about this, go back to 1 Samuel 16. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, hey, we've mourned long enough for Saul, King Saul. I'm rejecting him as king. We need a new king. So Samuel, I want you to go pick out a new king. This is what you're going to do. You're going to take a heifer, you're going to take it as a sacrifice, and you're going to invite Jesse and his family, and you're going to find a young man there who's going to be the next king. Samuel goes, he did as the Lord instructed, gets to Bethlehem, the elders of the town come trembling out, it's like, it's Samuel, we're in trouble. They like, no, it's all good, I'm here to just offer a sacrifice. I need Jesse and his family to come around, they come around. When they arrive, Samuel looks at the boys coming in, and he takes one look at Eliab. One look. Here's Samuel, ready to proclaim the next king. One look at Eliab, and like, oh, king. This is the king right here. Surely, this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by height or appearance, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them, Samuel. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so down the line of brothers until Samuel's like, you got anybody else, Jesse? Well, David, he's out. <laughs> he's out with the sheep right now. He's sort of doing a shepherding job, you know. I guess I need to see him. And we know the rest of the story is King David Learning to the ancestry lines, the genealogy of Jesus, his name King. Again, we would have never picked David, but God said, that's because you all look in the wrong way. Trust me. How many times 
have we sat in these seats out here and said, I can't do this for God? No way. But if God had a genealogy listed for something great to happen, I'm going to guess that your name is right in there. We've counted ourselves out and said, I, I, I'm not, no, no. And God throws that rope out and he says, would you please grab on and trust me on this one? You who are without hope, you who doubt, you who are struggling right now, trust me. God isn't just picking the godly and the elders and the spiritually educated, but those who are new in faith. God picks me, God picks you. He wants us to trust him. You thought your life might be hopeless? Not when God tosses that rope to you. Hold on. Hold on. Would you please stand with me? When we examine our lives and our sins, our qualifications, would you do me a favor? Focus on this as you're standing. Do you think God would ever pick you to parent Jesus? Some of you might, might have just sort of chuckled at that. <laughs> me? I can't even do the kids I have now, and you want me to raise Jesus? No way, right? You think God would ever contact you and say, hey, I'm, I'm coming to this world. I'm going to come to your home. I'm going to live with you, and I'm going to grow up in your house. How does that strike you all? You're thinking, no way. Listen very carefully. He has. He is. He's living in your home right now because he lives within you. You're already there. There's none of this. Well, I'm not qualified. I'm sorry. As a believer in Jesus Christ, his spirit lives within you. Jesus is already in the house. He's already there. What we hope for, new life, salvation from sin, peace and turmoil, all the things we hope for, he gives, he delivers. He chooses you like he chose Rahab. He chooses you like he chose Mary. He chooses you like he chose Joseph. He chooses you. Church, God has chosen you this morning. What has he chosen you to do? That's the only thing that you can probably answer better than I can. But I'm telling you something, you've been chosen. And you're thinking, I don't know if I can do whatever he's asking me to do. Grab onto that rope. Trust him. Trust him. So you walk out of here this morning. What hopefully strikes? I don't know. I, I pray God's spirit spoke to you one, one way or another. But I'm going to say this. First of all, rejoice. Rejoice that you've been chosen. Rejoice that God picks you. Rejoice in those moments you think, not me, unlikely. You've been chosen, so rejoice. Here's the second thing I'd say. Humbly accept your choosing. Humbly accept it. Say, thank you. Thanks, God, for picking me. Here's the third thing I'd say. Hold on. Hold on. Trust Him every day. He is your hope. He is your salvation. Trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. Thank you, God, that you've chosen us. Lord, I can't believe you chose Rahab. Of 
course, I could sit there and say, God, you know what she's like? And you're like, I know more than you know, Rex, way more. And I chose her. And then I would have to humbly say, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to point that out. But that's probably because as a human being, in my own insecurities, I'm trying to find an excuse why you shouldn't pick me. But God, in your infinite wisdom, you've picked me. Just like you've picked everyone in this room. We're chosen. What seems unlikely, you've chosen. So we rejoice, God, that you've picked us. Thank you. Let us humbly accept that and move forward with what you want us to do. And we'll hold on. We're going to hold on to whatever you're asking us to do, God. We're going to hold on because there's going to be times we're going to feel hopeless and think, God, you picked me to teach this class. I can't get these little kids to listen to me. I'm going to hold on to that rope. Maybe it's reaching out to a neighbor and say, God, I'm supposed to share salvation with them. We're going to hold on to that rope. We're going to trust you. We're going to share salvation. Whatever it is you're calling us to do, God, we're going to hold on and trust you because you've called us to do something special and incredible right here, right now. Thank you, God. Speak to us, Lord, as we sing to you and worship you. In that name we pray.